Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. We want to read the scripture for the sermon today. If you would open your Bible to Romans chapter 15, we're going to read 13 through 21. Again, Romans 15, verse 13 through 21. If you don't have your Bible, it's on the screen. All right, starting in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by the way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in this priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Icarium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Jonathan. Morning, church. Love all of you. Good to see you. Um, How many of you are Dave Matthews band fans? Raise your hands. There's a few of you. How many of you don't even know who that is? There's a few of you. Okay. Uh, Dave Matthews wrote a song uh, several years ago called The Space Between. Uh, There's a lot of speculation as to what this song is actually about. Uh, Let let me just read you some of the lyrics. Um, He writes, you cannot quit me so quickly. Is there no hope in you for me? No corner could you squeeze me, but I've got all the time for you, love. The space between the tears we cry is the laughter that keeps us coming back for more. The space between the wicked lies we tell to keep us safe from the pain. Will I hold you again? These fickle, fuddled words confuse me like, will it rain today? We waste the hours with talking, talking, these twisted games we're playing. We're strange allies with warring hearts. What a wild-eyed beast you be, the space between. 
The wicked lies we tell that hope to keep us safe from the pain. Look at us spinning out in the madness of a roller coaster. You know you went off like the devil in the church, in the middle of a crowded room. All we can do, my love, is hope that we don't take this ship down. So the best I can tell, this song is about a relationship that isn't quite working despite the fact that the couple really does love each other. The space between that he keeps referring to, I think, might be the space between the good and the bad. We get that, right? On the one hand, the couple is happy. The laughter keeps us coming back for more. Yet on the other hand, the couple is unhappy, forced to lie to one another to make the relationship work and avoid fighting. Will it rain today? Maybe he's wondering, is it going to be a good day or a bad day? Perhaps the writer is contemplating that. With warring hearts refers to the fighting, even though they love each other. And will I hold you again? Perhaps is the question, is is this relationship going to last even one more day? We should get that, right? Even in the relationships that you treasure the most, the people that you love the most, we understand, right, that there's this space between that love that we're convinced of, that commitment that we've made to this other person, The space between that and the hard realities of life, isn't there? Where that love and that commitment gets tested. It gets squeezed because the pressures of life have a way of causing us to end up in conflict, even with the people that we know and love and treasure the most. There's this space between the love we know and the hard, difficult realities that we face in life. Would you agree with that? Okay. Now, I, I want to bring up a statement that I, I know gets thrown around in church, a church a lot, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. And the statement is this. Life is hard, but, can you finish it? God is good. Let's say it together. Life is hard, but God is good. Now, life is hard. How many of you agree with that? Right? I mean, that's just obvious. I could spend the rest of this sermon talking about all the reasons why we agree life can be very, very difficult at, at times, right? God is good. How many of you agree that's true? Likewise, I could spend the rest of this sermon just simply going through the Bible and talking about all the ways in which God is revealed to us as a good God. But I want you to stop for a minute and think about the space between those two phrases. Life is hard, God is good. Isn't it true that at times that space feels like a massive chasm? Would you agree with that? Like there are moments when I'm facing the hard realities of life where I feel myself reaching in faith for the truth that God is still good. At other times, I'm clinging to the goodness of God with all my might while it feels like the hard realities of life are trying to pry my faith from my spiritual fingers. Life is hard, but God is good, and it's in that space that we wrestle. It's in that space that we struggle. It's in that space that ministry happens, that discipleship happens. It's in that space that we grow and are sanctified. We're going to talk about what that word means. It's in that space that God teaches us to depend on him, teaches us to trust him, shows us that he truly is all satisfying, right? It's in that space between. I know you know this, but I think it bears repeating. 
The Christian life is not an exercise in academic study alone. I'm all about the exegesis of Scripture. I'm all about breaking it down. I'm all about digging into the text. We call it treasure hunting here at Res, where we dig into the truth of God's word and we hunt for the treasure that is God himself. There's a verse in Ezekiel, I think it is, that says, and the Lord appeared to Samuel at Shiloh by the word, right? So there is a, a seeing and a knowing, not just a cognitive knowing, but an experiential knowing that happens as we break down the text, as we study scripture, because discipleship is not just an academic exercise, it's a relational pursuit, I'm pursuing, when I study this, when I break this down during a fast like we're doing right now and I up the ante on my Bible reading, I'm not just trying to get information about God. I'm pursuing a deeper, more intimate, all-satisfying relationship with the living God. So in that space between life is hard and God is good, I need the scriptures, in that space between life is hard and God is good, I need the person of the Holy Spirit, right? In that space between life is hard and God is good, I need the grace of God and I need you. I need you and you need me. There's an individual aspect to this pursuit of relationship with the living God. There's also a corporate aspect to it. We together get to wrestle and encourage and build up and strengthen and employ our spiritual gifts to help each other grow in our knowledge and in our experience and in our passion and in our satisfaction and in our trust and in our dependence with the living God in the space between these two things we know to be true. Life is hard. Let's say it again. Life is hard, but God is good. I think you could read Romans, kind of like a surface reading of Romans, and, and come away feeling like this is just some sort of high-minded doctrinal dissertation on the gospel. But in, nothing could be further from the truth. Let's just take a moment and remember, this is a letter this is a letter that Paul wrote to people, Christians, namely, in Rome, that he dearly loves. This is a deeply personal letter, and it's full of affection and desire and care and interest and prayer for real people by a real person, namely the Apostle Paul. All right? This is a relational letter. In fact, that's how Paul starts it. He starts out by telling these Romans, look, I haven't been to meet you face to face yet, but that's what I'm longing to do. Back up to chapter 1 and look at it with me. Chapter 1, verse 9. This is so relational. Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. I have a Bible in my office. I love Bibles. I got lots of them. <laughs> and I have a Bible in my office that 
has no chapter headings and it has no verse designations. It just has the chapter numbers and then it just reads. And I went back this week and I read the whole letter of Romans. And it was so refreshing to get out of the, have you ever noticed how the verse designation sort of puts you in this mode? Like for those of you that are old enough to remember, like you're reading an encyclopedia. Okay, some of you are like, what's an encyclopedia? I don't even know what that is. But if you know what I'm talking about, it can feel that way and you can forget that this is a deeply personal letter. You fast forward to the end, to chapter 15, verse 24. Look at this. Paul says, I, again, he reiterates the same thing. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. See how personal that is? He goes on in the next three verses to tell them, look, I've been going around and collecting money for the suffering Christians in Jerusalem, and I've got to deliver that collection. There's a missional obligation that Paul has that he's got to fulfill before he can get to Rome. But after telling them that, again, he goes on to talk about how he longs to be with them and even asks them to pray that all hindrances would be removed so that he can get there. Verse 28. When therefore I have completed this, talking about the delivering of the offering, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of, of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I think a lot of times Christians skip these portions of Scripture because we're in this mad rush to find application. We want to find something. You know, we treat the Bible like it's this this therapeutic book written by a therapeutic deity that's just going to give us these little nuggets to keep us moving along in all the little difficulties we're find, facing in life. And it's not that the Bible doesn't help us, but the Bible has these parts in it, I think, that are meant to be as relatable as they are applicable. I think some people think the Apostle Paul was this terse, tense, you know, just like hard to be around, tiring, always on the go, general in the Christendom. And maybe he was that to some degree. I mean, it, as low as our pain tolerance is today, we'd probably be exhausted after two days with him. But Paul's a real guy. Paul's a real guy and he's writing to real people. He's not writing to scholars He's not writing to a university. He's writing to laborers and families and moms and dads and teenagers and young marrieds and people that are engaged. He's writing to people that are just trying to do life like you and I are just trying to do life. And he says, look, I want you to know, sandwiched in between all this truth that I've given you about the gospel is this real desire that I have to come and see you. You know the old adage, right? I don't care, you don't, you know, um, I wrote it down. People don't care what you know until you know how much you care. This is Paul. There's a deep and rich relationship here. And Paul wanted his readers to know 
look, I long to be with you. I long to be encouraged by you and you encouraged by me. And that's so important as we are going to camp out now in verses 14 to 21 is to know Paul loves these people. And these people are people just like you and me. Are you there? This is relatable, all right? So let's pick back up in verse 14. He's writing to people just like us that are trying to navigate the space between life is hard and God is good and the gospel is so rich and beautiful and wonderful and mysterious and hard to swallow at times. How many of you would say you've struggled with that through Romans that there have been some things that's been like, man, that's hard to get my mind around, yeah? All right, they, these people are right here with us. And look at what Paul says to them in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. There's two overstatements there. I myself and you yourselves. This is literally Paul going, look, me, the guy that's written all of this to you, 15 chapters, me, Paul, and you yourselves, the same people that I long to see, that I long to come and be with and be strengthened mutually by the work of God in us, you yourselves, I myself, and what? I'm satisfied about you. Now, the ESV is weak there. Because literally what the word means is I have a settled conviction about you, Romans, that I'm increasingly convinced of. I have a settled conviction about you that I'm increasingly convinced of. What conviction, Paul? What are you sure about with the Romans? That you are full of goodness. Everybody say goodness. You're overflowing with a desire for what is good. That's awesome, isn't it? This is Paul's affirmation. You are full of goodness. And then he says, you are filled, and the tense of the Greek word means that they have been filled and they're continuing to be filled with all knowledge. And I think that's about the knowledge of Christ. So let's put it all together. I, Paul, same guy that's been writing to you, I am fully convinced and increasingly so that you, Romans, are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. And you might read that and go, okay, Paul, if that's true, why write all of this? Like if we already know it, if we're already full of goodness, if we're already filled with knowledge, why write all of that you have written to us in this letter? I think he answers the question in verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Spirit. I've written to remind you. How many of you wives have to remind your husbands to pick up their socks? How many of you parents have to remind your kids to do your homework, to do their homework, right? How many 
students in here have to remind your parents that you need $5 for whatever else that the schools have come up with to tell you to bring $5 for. Why do we remind people of things, right? It's not just because we're trying to tell people information that they already know, right? We, we remind for effect, and that's literally what that word in the Greek means, is to appropriately remind for an effect. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you, before we've gone through this study in Romans, would say, but, but like if you go back to before we began this study, that you would say that, yes, before we started working through Romans, I was fully convinced that God is sovereign. Raise your hand. You know that, okay? And how many of you would say, before we went through Romans, you were fully convinced that there was nothing you could do to earn righteousness, that you had to be made righteous by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone? How many of you would say you knew that, okay? How many of you would say you, would, you knew that the gospel not only tells us that we are forgiven of sin, but that God in Christ has actually broken the back of the power of sin over our lives. How many of you would say you were fully convinced of that? And then how many of you would also say, all right, your arm's getting tired yet? This is the last one. How many of you would also say that having gone through Romans, the scriptures coupled with the power of the Spirit, have led you to think much more deeply and richly about all those things you already knew. Right? I think this is what this is about. During this fast that we're doing, um, Mary, one of the things Mary and I decided to do was that we were going to read Desiring God by John Piper together. I've read it before. I don't, I don't think Mary's read it before, but we just decided that part of our fast was going to be to just spend time that we would be doing other things, reading that book together. And one of the things that book really brings to your attention is the sovereignty of God. And we laid in bed the other night and we just talked about how both of us going through Romans together with you guys as a church has really challenged some of the the presuppositions and perceptions that we've had about God in our past and growing up about who he is and what he's like. And in some ways, paradigms have been shattered for the good, but nonetheless difficult as we wrestle with the fact that the Bible reveals to us a God that is sovereign, right? And Paul, I think, is telling his readers, listen, I know you're doing good. You're on the right track. But I've written to you boldly by way of reminder because my reminders are going to lead you to think more deeply and richly about these truths of God that many of which you might already know, but you need to think deeper about them. Why? Because in the space between life is hard and God is good, how many of you would agree a surface awareness or consciousness of the sovereignty of God is just not going to get it done? a surface awareness of what it means for God to break the power of sin over our lives in that space between life is hard and God is good is just not going to get it done. A surface understanding of what Paul means when he says, and God works all things together for, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's not going to get it done when the hard realities of life challenge what we know to be true that our God is sovereign and he is 
good. Our elders met at uh, this past Thursday morning at 5.30 a.m. And it's just one of our meeting times. And before Wednesday night, before our meeting on Thursday morning, I sent them a reminder text. Why? I knew they knew we were meeting. But we're all busy people. These are, you know, these are grown men. I don't think, I don't lack for confidence that they can manage their schedules. But I wanted to remind them, hey, set your alarm. Right? I want to remind them, I'm going to pick up Hardy's biscuits, so don't worry about breakfast. I wanted just to remind them to think more deeply about what they already knew was coming. And I think this is Paul's point. You're full of goodness. You're full of knowledge. But I've written by way to remind you to help you go deeper in your relationship with the living God. All right? Life is hard, but... How do we build that bridge between what can feel like a massive chasm at times? I think the bridge is built in what we might just say is ministry. It's the togetherness of our pursuit of relationship with the living God. It's the togetherness of our collective efforts of depending on the Holy Spirit to walk by faith and not by sight. It's the togetherness of the wrestling with text and wrestling with scriptures and praying together and rehearsing the truth of God's word, reminding one another of what's true in an effort to go deeper and richer and all the more satisfied and convinced that life, yes, life is hard, but God is good. And Paul, he talks about that. He talks about his ministry. He's given them an affirmation, and now he's going to talk about his ministry. Let's look at verse 15 again. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified. Would you just say sanctified with me, please? Sanctified. It's not a word we use a lot anymore, is it? It means to make holy. Holy is not a word that we use rightly. We use it as an adjective on the front of the word cow when we stub our toe. I mean, these are rich words that get lost on us. You would be sanctified, made holy. Paul says, my ministry first is a gift of grace. All right, it's God's grace to me and then by extension to you, Romans. This gift of grace in which God is working so that I, like an Old Testament priest that would bring the offering into the holy place and present it to God and God would make it holy to atone for the sins of the people, I'm, my offering is you, Gentiles, 
to bring to God that you might be sanctified, that you might be made holy. That's his ministry. That's what he's after. Paul's ministry is definitely evangelistic, right? But he's after something more. He's not just simply looking to convert people. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud or boast or exult in my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Jesus gave the great commission. You could probably quote it. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to what? Obey or observe all that I've commanded you. Discipleship, making disciples, does not stop at conversion. Paul is deeply committed to evangelism. He's like, I'm going to go to the places that have never heard. I'm going to go to the people that have never understood. And I'm going to preach to them. I'm going to proclaim the good news to them. But let's not dumb that down to think that Paul's just simply looking to go and stand on a street corner and say, Jesus died for your sins so you could go to heaven when you die. Now raise your hand, repeat after me, and then you're good. He says, I'm like a priest bringing the offering of Gentiles that they may be sanctified. And then he says in verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring Gentiles to obedience. Obedience. Sanctification and obedience are almost like the same thing. A sanctified saint follows Christ and obeys Jesus morally and missionally. And it's in that space between life is hard and God is good where obedience is tested. What happened for Jesus? Think about it. He comes as a man he, without forsaking or without compromising his godness. He fully takes on flesh. And he lives a perfectly sinless life. And we've talked about this before. How did he do that? Was he relying upon some divine attribute to avoid sin and obey his father that you and I don't have the advantage of using? No. He didn't do that. He said, I could call legions of angels. I could stop all of this. But that's not what he did, did he? He depended on the Holy Spirit. He lived a sinless life. And you fast forward all the way to the climactic moment of his earthly ministry. He's in the garden and he's praying and he tells his disciples, he says, look, watch and pray with me that you what? You won't fall into temptation. And then Jesus goes and he prays. And why is he praying? Why do you think he's praying? 
Because he's depending. In this moment right now, as Hebrews says, right, he learned obedience. Not that he didn't know what it meant to obey, but he had to actually walk it out as a man, as a, the God-man who fully took on flesh. He had to learn what it meant to walk out obedience to his father in that space between life is hard, but God is good. And in that moment, he prays, Lord, Father, is there any other way? That this cup could pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will. Sanctification is becoming like Christ in obedience. In the most difficult moments of life, we abound in hope because of Jesus. We abound in hope first because of Christ. And not just all that he accomplished on the cross, but the example that he set and the invitation to follow him and live a life like his where we depend on the Holy Spirit and we depend on the word of God. When Jesus entered into the wilderness at the very beginning of his ministry, he had just come out of the waters of baptism. And when he came out of the waters of baptism, the Bible says that the heavens were opened and he saw, I don't know if anyone else saw it for sure, but he saw the heavens open, the spirit descend, and he heard his father say what? You are my son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And what are the first words out of the devil's mouth? If you are the son of God. He challenged the very word that the father had spoken to him. But what did Jesus say? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's why we fast, people. We fast because we need to remind our flesh, you don't live by food alone. You don't live by drink alone. You don't live by money alone. You don't live by entertainment alone. This is what I live by. In that space between life is hard and God is good, I follow my Savior in depending on what I know to be true about God and about his kingdom and about salvation and about redemption. And the Holy Spirit is in me and working to help me live well and to become sanctified in that space between life is hard and God is good. Sanctification, I don't want to oversimplify it, but I don't think it's wrong to say it's learning to obey. Yes, in the good times, but also in the hard times. And that's what Paul's after. That's his ambition. That's the grace that God's given him in ministry is to remind the Romans, look, you're full of goodness. You're filled with knowledge. And I think if Paul was standing here, it's a little bit speculative on my part, but I think if Paul was standing here right now talking to us, I think he'd say, Rez, James, Joel, Carmel, Amber, Bill, Andy, Jessica, I'm convinced about you. I've got a settled conviction. 
You're full of goodness. You're filled with knowledge. And I've written to remind you so that you won't sort of default. Like if you, you know how if you hold something that floats underneath the water, you hold it down there deep and then you let it go, it floats to the surface. I think our thinking is a lot like that. We go deep, don't we? We find ourselves maybe in a fast or in a time of prayer or in reading scripture or laying in bed at night talking with our spouse about the deep things of God and the rich things of God. And we, we, we dive in and we, 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 we feel nourished in our souls, right? We feel energized and encouraged and built up in the faith. And then how easy is it? How quickly does it happen that it feels like we just rise to the surface of what we know to be true? And Paul says, look, I've written to remind you so that you don't stay at that surface, so that you don't stay shallow, but that you keep diving, keep diving, keep swimming down into the deep and rich and wonderful. And when I say deep, don't get academic on me, okay? Like, like some people hear the word deep when we're talking about scripture and they just go, oh, that's just for the brainiacs. No, dive deep. Be like Martin Luther, and he said, I beat on the text till it yields its water. When you're in that space between life is hard and God is good because your marriage has fallen apart or your finances have fallen apart or your, your health has fallen apart or you don't know what's going on with your children or you don't know what's going on with your parents or you don't know what's going to happen with your career, you grab hold of Romans 8, 28, and you hold on to it. You dive deep down into those waters because you know my God's working all things together for good. You don't stay at that surface level. And thank God he inspired somebody like Paul to write to the Romans a very relational letter. Yes, there's some deep waters. But there's also a real guy who's writing to real people. And he's got an ambition, he's got a goal, there's a graced gift on his life for ministry. And he's saying, I'm writing to you to remind you for an effect. An effect that will lead to your sanctification, to your obedience. Obedience in everyday life and particularly in those moments when life is hard, but God is... What are our takeaways? Let me just give you a couple of things, okay? Think about, and then we're going to sing. The ministry, I don't want us to... Remember how I said last week that the Bible creates new categories of thought for us about things that might otherwise seem normal? everyday, common. This is one of the ways that the Bible continually reminds us to dive deep about everything that, as it relates to the body of Christ, our worship, our discipleship, our evangelism, our mission. The ministry, listen, the ministry of pastors, elders, small group leaders, teachers of children, of women, of men in the Christian community is a gift of God's grace to us. 
It's a gift of God's grace to us. And we should not treat that grace gift with contempt. Like there, I know this might sound a little self-serving, but I'm just going to say it because I'm not the only one that preaches around here. But there's a sense that you and I should be on the edge of our seat when the word of God is opened and it's preached. And the quality of a sermon is not just how well it entertains us. The quality of a sermon or teaching, whether it's with children or leading a, a, a life group Bible study or whatever, is not just how well it entertained me, but how well we all began to think and speak well of this. Because in that space between life is hard and God is good, I don't need just a clever illustration and a little anecdote to take home with me. The church, Christians need people, gifted people in the body that will lead by the grace gift that's on them, will lead us to dive deep, dive deep, so that we all in our pursuit of relationship with the living God continually grow in our sanctification and in our satisfaction of him. So it's a grace gift, amen? Here's the second thing I wanna say. The one another ministry, you notice how Paul says, look, I'm convinced you're full of goodness, that you're filled with knowledge, and that you're able to instruct one another. The ESV's weak there too. I don't like that word instruct. It's really the word admonish, which is a word we don't use a lot anymore, but it means everything from teaching, warning, rebuking, encouraging, and correcting. There's a one another ministry in the body of Christ where it's not just the pastors, elders, teachers, evangelists, prophets that speak and teach and encourage and admonish, but we do that with one another. We do that with one another. In the space between, life is hard, but we admonish one another. We instruct one another. And I'm not suggesting that in people's deepest, darkest trials and tragedies that you show up in the room and open the Bible and start exegeting texts. Remember, this is a relational letter. And sometimes the most biblically accurate and spirit-empowered way that I could lead you and you could leave me to dive deep in that struggle is to put my arm around you and say, look, I don't know how we're going to get through this, but here's what we know. Life is hard. God is good. I love you, and I'm here. I feel that. You know, Paul's not instructing in this part of Romans. He's not instructing. He just got pricked and he's bleeding. You know what he's bleeding? I love you, Romans. The same people that I've raised all these big questions to. Questions like, if God is sovereign over the human heart, why then does he find fault? Questions like, if grace abounds all the more that sin abounds, shouldn't we just go on sinning? Big questions. It's like, I want you to know in all these questions and wrestling with truth, I want you to know I love you. I long to be with you. And in that space between life and is hard and God is good, there's a grace gift of ministry that God's working, not only from me to you, but you with each other 
so that you might be sanctified. You might become more like Christ. And you'll find yourself in that place. Lord, I don't know what's going on with me right now and in my world. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In this sanctifying work that God does, as the ministry of gifted ministers takes place in the church and the ministry, the one another ministry, the grace of God works, as that takes place, I think the bridge is built for all of us and it's maintained and it's kept strong. When the winds come and the waves rise, the bridge between life is hard, but God is good, and we keep worshiping and we keep making much of Jesus. But this sanctifying work, this is my last point, this sanctifying work is what compels believers to go. To go. You know, I don't know about you. There's not much endurance for me in ministry when I'm met with resistance, when people oppose, when they don't listen, or I uproot my life and my family and I I give my time, energy, and treasure away to another people in another place, maybe in a hard place. You know, I haven't, I haven't suffered like some missionaries do. I'm not, I'm not going to try to sound like I have, because I haven't. You know, I haven't spent time in the Middle East where I might get arrested for preaching the gospel. I remember I sat down with a pastor one time who was living here in Greenville, and we were having lunch with a couple other guys, and he, he was telling me, he was, I think, filling in as an interim in a local church. But I, I just got this sense, the guy was just, like, antsy. Like, he, was, he wasn't settled. And I said, well, what, what do you see God doing with you in you know, the coming months, years, whatever? And he's like, I'll never forget this. He looked me right straight back in the eye, and he said, I'm going to go where the bullets are flying. And I just thought, wow, I want to go where the bullets are flying. I want to go where the gospel and its controversial nature is going to uproot strongholds and principalities and powers that have tried to exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. I want to preach Christ and him crucified, even in the face of threat. And he was real genuine about it. He wasn't being like, Oh, high and mighty, there was just a real desire for him to go. And I don't think all of us are called to go in that same way. I think some of us are called to minister in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our places of business and our schools and be faithful witnesses of Christ. But even in those spaces, how many of you would agree that at times that can be really scary and hard? And if we're not diving deep here, there's not a one another sanctifying work of grace that's taking place in the body of Christ. I just, I question whether or not there's going to be a whole lot of motivation to go. If we're not settled, if the bridge hasn't been built in our own minds between life is hard and God is good, 
What gives you and I the boldness to tell others about Jesus when we face ridicule? What motivates us to give generously to those who have been set apart by God to go into the hardest and unreached places? Is it not spirit-led, spirit-empowered, grace-based ministry that we do together in our wrestling with the revelation of God in Scripture? Isn't that where we launch from? Praise team, you can come on, but let me say this. I almost wonder, it's not wrong to say, you know, I want to go to church and get fed. The question is, why do you want to be fed? You know, there's sometimes I go to eat and I just want to eat. I just want to get full. When we're fasting, Oh, man, you just crave those things, right, that you've been setting aside. But I think part of fasting is not only to remind us that we, we find our nourishment in God, in Christ, and we find our soul satisfaction in those things, not the things of this world, but in being nourished by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, we're nourished for the mission. We're not just nourished so we can get fat. So we can sit back in our recliners and go, man, that was good. Right? I'm not looking for a pat on the back, but I just, I want, I want you to understand, have you been nourished today in God's word? You feel that? soul energy rising up because you've been reminded you've been sort of encouraged to jump off the diving board and dive down deep into the to the deep waters of the gospel where we yeah we don't we don't forget that life is hard at times but we remember God is good God is good all my life you've been faithful all my life you've been so so good and I just want to pray for us today that if the bridge between life is hard and God is good has gotten weak or compromised for us personally that God would just repair the breaches repair the weak places in that bridge that we live in, the in-between, the space between, that he would just work in such a way to do that for us so that we won't leave here today just going, that was a good meal. We'll leave here today and go, I'm nourished for the mission that God's called me to, and I'm a sent one to my world, to my home, to my family, to my children, my place of business, my school, my neighborhood gas station, Starbucks, the people that I'm going to interact with this week that I don't even know, those divine appointments have been set. But I've been nourished to go and tell the good news. Amen? Stand with me. Life hard sometimes 
but God is good. <laughs> you are good. And so, Lord, I, I pray exactly what I feel like you've put on my heart to pray for all of us, myself included. Lord, you would, in the space between, life is hard, but God is good, you would, you would strengthen, you would fortify, that you would reinforce with the truth of your word, that bridge, that that structure that, of the gospel that helps us live well in that space. Not only for our own sake, but for the sake of those you've called us to. Let us be a church that not only employs the gifts of pastors, teachers, and evangelists, but let us be a church that's full of all kinds of one another ministry where we remind each other, we remind each other all the time the truth that sustains us. We long for your coming. We long for the kingdom to come in its fullness. We long for the day when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And the dwelling place of God will be among his people. And every tear will be wiped away. Sin will be no more. Death will be no more. The sea will be no more. We long for that day. But between now and then, let your grace be abundant to us. Sanctify us, sanctify us, make us like Jesus. We would make much of him in our world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com slash give. Thanks again for joining us.